everyone. Welcome to the Just Joe Podcast, episode 1919. This is the last one. We're going to be a big old 20 next week. This week, I bring in Scott Sterling, Syracuse Music Hall of Famer. I've been a staple in this place for many, many, many moons. Uh, he currently books the Dinosaur Barbecue. He's been there for a number of years. But today, we're going to talk about where he really got a start in this town, and that was booking the Lost Horizon. Yes, the legendary Lost Horizon. We're going to get some stories out of this. This could go on for hours and hours, so who knows where this episode will lead. Everybody welcome Scott Sterling. All right, buddy, here I am. You heard the intro. The intro, I got my good friend Scott Sterling here, uh, Syracuse Music Hall of Famer, all around great guy. I've known you for probably 23, almost 25 years at this point, and uh, today we're going to talk to Lost Horizon. What do you say? I'm in it. I'm in. I'm deeply in. So, I mean... How did, I mean, I guess go back. I mean, everybody knows if you're from Syracuse, the Lost Horizon is our club. It's our CBGBs. It's our double door from Chicago, you know? Yep. And, um, I mean, is that a good way that you would describe it? Uh, 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 you, you've, you've made a great reference, Joe. Uh, somewhere in the uh, middle 80s, it occurred to to us, uh, you know, working down there, that uh, you know things were changing, and places like the Channel in Boston, CBGBs in New York, the Rat in uh, Rat in Boston, uh, uh, CBGBs in New York, doing multi-band, multi-layered, uh, you know, is is punk rock, metal, speed metal, rock and roll. Why can't we do all that? We yeah. can, and let's move from this single show guy one band covering the night to three or four or maybe even more bands all doing more of a showcase styled major city kind of a set and i think that was sort of the the guidepost the the frame of what we wanted to try to do there yeah because i mean once that kind of the floodgate kind of opened at the lost it was like we became but I mean, everybody stopped. Everybody stopped here. It was a staple on that on the circuit. A concept of uh, the times changing and location, location, <laughs> location. We just happened it's to be true. in between. Like we happen to be just off the throughway, and it's a nice little convenient stopping point between much larger cities. You know, exactly. You're going. You know, if you're going east to west, you're going north to south. You're going any kind of angle in there. Here we sit in between, you know, Cleveland and Cincinnati over here, and New York, Philadelphia, Boston, Toronto. You know, it, it just, if you're driving through the Northeast, you're driving through Syracuse. Uh-oh. You could take a day, you could take a day and like, oh, okay, let's spend a bunch of money on hotels and feeding everybody, or let's pick up a gig and yeah. let's cover our costs. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess this, I guess this part is a two part question. It's like, one, how did you get involved? And two, we all know like whose whose vision was this? Was this like Greg's or a combination of Greg and Chuck Chao and Dave Rezik that kind of had the vision? So let's first. How did you get started at the Lost Horizon? How did you end up in the position that you were there? Boy, I you know I I started going there when I first moved here in uh, uh, the it's almost 1980, and they shift over there from being a dance club, they're moving into being a rock club, and then they're moving into adding more nights. And the beginning of the week, what do we do? They start doing 
what I guess, you know, people call new wave, whatever you want to call it, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays, bands like the Flash Cubes, which becomes Screen Test, the Tearjerkers, a band I was in for a while, the Natives, and all of a sudden, Monday and Tuesday, Wednesday, all these nights start having meaning, and they become consistent places for people to go see original music, and again, not just the cover band situation. Right. Uh, and that kind of rolls over, and as that style of music gets more popular, it moves across the week and moves towards the weekend. And I think the multiple band thing, I'm not going to put point towards anyone else, but I think I have something to do with that, especially in the hard rock metal category. That's really where we start at the Lost Horizon, doing multiple bands and building shows around, bringing a, a slightly known headliner with an indie record out and putting a ton of other bands of the same style on it. And wait a minute. Whoa, a bunch of people just showed up. I think we got an idea here. Yeah, so that that wasn't even really a, a, a concept. I didn't realize that until that. Be, I mean, that's kind of the standard when it comes to the original shows now. Yeah, you know, and that's what was happening in other places, and we decided we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna try to do that because it seems to make sense, you know. And then bands were coming in, would bring in their friend bands, and go, look, we got we got a two three band bill here. Can we can we do a gig instead of just you know, pitching it by yourself? And all of a sudden, wow, bands this many bands that could bring in that many more people, and then you could get away with doing whatever you wanted, original music, crazy covers, whatever you wanted to do. That's awesome. So, I mean, who do you, who do you think was like the really spearheaded bringing in a lot of those national acts? Because I mean, you know, there's some people like Chuck Chao, Dave oh, Razik, Greg, who owned the club, Greg Italiano, God rest his soul. You know, yep. so died too young. Yes, he but, did. Uh, yeah, a, a lot of the shows, a lot of the history of the Horizon has a lot to do with Chuck Chao, Chuck's relationship with Greg, Chuck's relationship with with with, with the core people that work there, and. Uh, Taking um, as as I've heard Chuck say that corner of Thompson Road and, and Erie Boulevard, and you know making it into this this showplace of anything where you could like you know there might be the Neville Brothers one night, Blue Oyster Cult two nights later, and Black Flag two days after that. Not a lot of clubs anywhere, Joe. No, that could go. Hey, we really did it all. <laughs> I know. I remember when I after I left Brand New Sin and I got to work with Greg for a, a couple of years, helping him book the Lost Rise and and the stories I got from Greg's about the history and all that stuff. And he's bringing out old calendars that he had. I'm looking at the calendars from like 1984, 1988. And how much he paid some of his people and who was coming. And I'm just like, Jesus Christ, this was a week. This was just one week. Like my fa my favorite week. And I tell everybody this and you were there for it. I think and I don't know if it was exactly in this order. It was like a Wednesday night was um, Robert Cray. The next <laughs> night was the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Faith No More. The following yep. night was like maybe like Axiom or somebody like that, like a local band. And then Saturday night was Guns N' Roses. <laughs> yep, Halloween night. 
Guns N' Roses on Halloween on the first tour on the Appetite for Destruction tour. Robert Craig that same week featuring who a, 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 a fellow who's who's not with us anymore. My friend Dave Olson. Oh, that's right. The original drummer with Robert Craig, I but he that. still yeah. lived in Eugene, Oregon. The first time I met him, he came in as an opening act for the Nighthawks, and then they came back the week you're talking about when the first Cray album comes out, and they're killing it all over the world, and later he'll become a Syracuse resident. That's crazy, man. Like, that just, I mean, I tell everybody, I go, we could go weeks and weeks like that, but that, like, they, that sums it up, because you're talking about some of the most legendary bands of all time, one of the most oh, legendary yeah. blues guys of all time. Right. And the and the Lost Horizon, when Guns N' Roses played, they had to go up against a big show with the Masters of Reality having their yes. hometown show across town at the Landmark. Yes, and I had to run back and forth between <laughs> those shows that specific day, Joe. It was a very crazy time. There's a, there's a bunch of there's a few funny stories from just the very week that you're talking about. I can't even imagine the uh, the the, uh, the Chili Peppers uh, 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 and um, who were we just talking about there? Faith and uh, opening for the, yeah. uh, Faith and War opening for the Chili's. Neither band at that point in their career are carrying engineers. I mixed both those sets that very night. Flea <laughs> uh, had bought a brand new. Equalizer, a Clark Techniques, very expensive. He has it in, a, in in the cardboard case and comes up to me and says, dude, you're the sound guy, right? Yeah. You know about sound. Yeah. Hey, can you help me with this? Yeah. So we, we plays the bass. I play with the Clark Techniques EQ, and we set up his rig that day. He just got it out of the box. Nice guys. So The Faith No More guys who I mixed three times over to overtime. Incredible guys. So glad they had success. Some of the nicest guys that ever worked with the Faith No More guys. That Very was cool. was that before Mike Patton, or was that with, still with yeah. Chuck Mosley? Oh, no, no, wait a minute. There, I, there, are, there, are, uh, there are two pre-Mike Patton shows and one Mike Patton show. Nice. So uh, uh, those are great. Those, those great shows. Here's a, here's another moment. It's a fun moment from the Guns N' Roses yeah. sound check day, Halloween uh, of that year in the late eighties. Let's see here. We've got Izzy. Izzy sitting at the bar. He's drinking. He's drinking with Slash in the in the afternoon. And the guitar tech comes over and takes his drinks away. <laughs> and he's yelling at him, "What are you doing?" He goes, "I don't want what happened the other day in Cleveland to happen again." And Izzy looks at him. He goes, "I don't know what you're talking about." And during the show, Izzy had gotten so liquored up that he's doing a, a guitar part in the front of the stage. Pulls the uh, white, beautiful white Les Paul, Gibson Les Paul, off his shoulders and kind of lets one of the audience members kind of strum on it. And another audience member grabs the neck, grabs the guitar, beelines through the giant-filled house and out the front door. The <laughs> Guns N' Roses crew dive into the pit. The security guys dive in the pit, can't get through the thick, massive crowd enough, and the guy goes out the door and goodbye, Izzy Stradlin, white Les Paul. And he didn't remember... A moment of it. <laughs> so he didn't know like, where's, where, where's that Les Paul that So he didn't lose another guitar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, dude, so let me ask you this. I mean, you and I have talked a ton of stories, you know, over the years about it. And like, what, what do you think? I mean, this can be tough, but like, what do you think your favorite moment at the Lost Rides? Like, what your favorite show, your favorite moment was? That's, is that hard to pick one? They're, they're, picking one is is very hard. I'll throw a, I'll throw well, a couple. Well, at give me you, a couple. Joe. I'll tell you, 
I'll tell you, one of my, my, uh, my best memories is doing a show with John Entwistle, the bass player from The Who, Who. Yeah. The Ox. The Ox. He comes there with his solo band, which was most of a band called Rat Race Choir from the Long Island, New York City area that did a lot of Who material and could kill it. And he would hire them because he loved the tour, whether the Who were working or not. He just liked the tour. And he was a great guy. We had gotten a call, I'm sure, through Chuck Teo at the time. Hey, we got to have some things that are going to get shipped to the club that are for Entwistle's tour. And they're going to be there because they're, they're coming here on the front of the tour. We all these boxes. The tour manager comes in. We uncrate all these base, base gear, brand new at the time. In fact, nobody's even seen them. PV Mega Base heads and cabinets. Oh, okay. So we uncrack them all, and the tour manager comes in. We set them up. A pair of Marshall cabinets and Marshall heads go on top of them. In comes the band. They're sound checking. In comes, in comes John Antwistle. And he's messing with the rig. And he's playing with the PV Mega Bass things with his bass, and it sounds really cool. He clicks on the Marshall heads and the cabinets above the new PV stuff, and there's the sound of the Who, this like rhythm guitar bass together. And it's like, it's amazing. You're just standing next to him at Soundcheck, and there's the bass player from the Who. This is pretty cool. And we'd met, and he turns around, and he stops, and he looks over, and he goes, Well, Scott, what do you think? Does it sound all right? And there I am in my mind, and again, the bass player from The Who is asking me if it sounds all right. <laughs> yes, Mr. Atwistle, sounds awesome. Sounds oh, great. all right, then. Let's do the rest of the sound check. It was just, just incredible. A great guy. One of those things you want to meet your heroes, you're going to hope. God, I hope this guy's not a jerk. Yeah, he, and he was one of the nicest asshole. guys yeah, right. I ever met in my whole life, and he was just super cool. And Joe, it's the only time on the whole time I worked at the Horizon, years and years and years and years, that I ever asked an act for a personal autograph, and yeah. I had him sign the ad, and I still have it. Yeah, that, that, that's I've met a lot of people over the years, and a lot of people are like, well, did you get your picture? Did you ask? I'm like, no, man. I'm like, I didn't. I met them on a different plane, you know, mm -hmm. like, you know, and, and that's their place and my place and. I I was blessed enough to be on the level with them, and that's where I I feel more privileged than that than walking away with an actual autograph or something, you know. So oh, yeah, I get absolutely. it. Yeah, it, it, it's funny thinking about it and people saying stuff going back. What do you mean? You said this guy that nah. You, you were you were you were working. It just I just went to work that day. It just happened. Bon Jovi was there. It just happened. Blue Oyster Cult was there. It just happened. The Red Hot Chili's right. Peppers were there. You know, are you dropping names? No, I just went to work. No, I just went to just work. Went to work. So what's so what's the other story? I'm interested. Uh, I, so yeah, I will say the first time that we did the Blue Oyster Cult, where we were bound to not use their name, we had to use only their original name, Soft White Underbelly, in the ads. We were allowed to mention songs they might do, but we could not use the words Blue Oyster Cult. And of course, it was packed to the walls. It was one of the hardest. Uh, production jobs we ever did because they just they, at that point they had not been doing clubs and they wanted basically to put a small theater show 
into a club. Into the, and, and not just a club, the Lost Horizon. <laughs> right, the Lost Horizon. It was the most lights we ever put on the stage to that date at that time. And, uh, it must we have been 5,000 we degrees up there. Yeah, we, we were bound and determined to, uh, to make them happy. Mention 1,000 degrees in a second, Joe. It's going to lead to another story. <laughs> but when I'm 15 years old, my favorite band in the world, and still one of my favorite bands, is the Blue Oyster Cult. So having them come in the club, and there's, there's Alan Lanier, who is still alive, and Buck Dharma, Buck Dharma. and, and uh, uh, of course, one of the great, great guitar greats, and Eric Bloom, just was just incredible. I had a Tyranny of Mutations shirt, if people like the cult. That's the second album on that day. And Buck Darner was very impressed that I had an OG Tyranny of Mutations shirt, and he thought it was very cool. And they were really nice guys. Total, total bonus. Total bonus. I, I was, and then you were, mentioned, you were mentioned in Heat. Yeah. And I'll go back to one of my very first giant experiences there on another favorite show. Is it the, the Straight Cat, Cat Show? Yeah. The Straight Cat Show. 95 degrees outside, July... About a month after MTV went on the air, there were major players on that. There, we let in, I think there were, <laughs> we might have broke a few rules. There was 1,100 people in a place that should have never had more than five or 600 people in it. And it was about 1,000 degrees inside, and it was one of the greatest shows ever. And then uh, downtown, there used to be the Round, the round Hotel now. I'm not sure what it's called. These it's days, a Crown Plaza. It was probably the Holiday Inn back then, right? Yes, yeah? it was. Yeah. It was the Holiday Inn. The, the <laughs> Stray Cats tour manager talked the night manager into giving him the keys to the hotel pool at about 2 in the morning. <laughs> and that fellow ran around the hotel like he was Beaker from uh, Sesame Street all night long because he had made one of the greater <laughs> mistakes ever. There was a balcony about 30 feet above the pool. People were diving off the balcony. Girls were running around with not a lot of clothes on. There was a soccer game because they had been living in, in England going on on the 10th floor in between all the rooms. One of the greatest rock and roll parties. Could have been a movie with the Stray Cats post that 1,000-degree show all at the Lost Horizon. I know. I have pictures from that. Like when I, um, when I started working at the Lost, Stacy gave me a pile of pictures, and I know they're still behind the Lost Horizon. And some of those pictures are that, that Stray Cat show because – a lot of people point to that, and I'm sure you might back this up as that was that was probably the first major show that put it on the map. Like that would that would you think that was like the starting point of like, yep, this is going to be the Lost Horizon for the next you know fifteen sixteen years, or as we know it. Yeah, it's not long before that. Bill Baker, who's uh, still with us, who was the manager there for a long time, working with Greg Italiano and and all of us that worked there, and Chuck. Um, I used to just hang out there. That's how I started working there. I played there, uh, but one day uh, we got a rider to a contract that was kind of new, and it asked for stagehands. And Bill Baker said, hey, man, you got a friend? Come down and do this band Toronto, they were called. And that was one of the first nationals we ever did, and we needed two people to help them. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, that, that was cool. And Bill said, hey, look, every time this happens, I'll give you a call. Now it's kind of how I fell into doing live production and and doing other stuff besides playing the guitar. Was, oh, I'm hanging out here. All, I'm hanging out here already. I might as well get paid to come to the shows that I'm already going to go to. I know, and then that that folded into uh, slightly bigger and bigger acts. And then right about there, right about the Stray Cats that summer of 1981 with, with MTV, all of a sudden everything changes. 
and and bands that were touring play, started playing cities they hadn't played before, cities yeah. that had MTV on the air, and of course Syracuse had MTV day one. Right, and going back to how you kind of fell into the job, that's the same way that how Stacy Waterman kind of got into the business was she was hanging out in the parking lot of the Lost Horizon as like a 14 or 15-year-old. I think she was 14, 13, 14 years old, picking up all the cans and bottles and listening to music, and then she would pick them up and put them in the garbage and just, you know, clean up the parking lot until one day, you know, Greg's like, hey, where are you? You want a job? You know, because he saw that she let, she let, let her in the door and that led her to, like, who she is nowadays. So it's like, you know, I, I really wish Greg was still alive because greg a lot of amazing stories um passed with greg you know no doubt and just think about what he did i mean so much that club did for so many people i was trying to remember if i was coming here i'm like man when was the first freaking time that i went to lost horizon and i think it was i went to see fugazi And they came through probably multiple, multiple, multiple times over the years. Oh, yeah. And I can't remember what year it was. It was probably in the early to mid-90s. And I remember getting there, and I had never seen... I'm like, all right, let's just get in and find a little pocket to find stand and, and see that. And I remember getting through the door, going past the Raggedy's brothers, being terrified <laughs> of those two because I'm like, oh, my God, what are these guys going to yell at me or something? Getting through, and there was not an empty space to stand. There were so many fucking people in that club, and that was an, unbelievable. That was, that was one of those shows, and it was like, what was Fugazi was always just ten bucks, right? It was ten bucks to get in, no matter what. Yeah, you know, Fugazi set uh, a hard a hard line. Every, every Ian McKay, the main player in Fugazi, and uh, and Discord Records, and you know, producer of of, of Rollins uh, Records. Really good guy, straight up business guy. I'm going to mention uh, uh, Pops McKeg, who was the hardcore promoter. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that hardcore music at one point Syracuse is the epicenter, epicenter. of hardcore music in America. Yes, it's it, it's out of control, and we start doing shows. We 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 move from local local hardcore to regional hardcore to national hardcore to shows like Fugazi and I can just I can see myself in the little in the little pocket the office inside the dressing room which used to be the DJ booth with yeah. Ian McKay with Pops settling up the show Ian had a specific amount of money you were not allowed to charge more he was not going to let his fans pay more than a certain level he was you know I'd rather have more people and and less money and it was like, wow, who is this guy? It's all about the show. It's not just about the cash. This is a whole, a whole different way of looking at things. Sunday afternoon matinees at the Lost Horizon become huge in a four or five week period. Joe, at one point, ABC Nightline, uh, USA Today, uh, ABC News, all 
send someone on different weeks in three, four, five weeks in a row. We have major television coverage coast to coast coming to the Syracuse Lost Horizon hardcore matinee to try and explain to the country what is hardcore and that they came here. They came yeah. to the Lost Horizon. Because I mean hard I mean, if you were in New York City or if you were in uh in the D C area and then obviously you had the West Coast hardcore movement unless you were in those areas, you didn't really know what the hell it was. And it wasn't a national phenomenon until it had, I guess, I don't know. I can't really say this because I'm not as well averse in the hardcore scene, but I know that we were like a huge part of the second wave of hardcore. And then the vegan straight edge hardcore, absolutely, when Earth Crisis, you know, spawned out of here. Yeah. And then that just spawned a whole other generation of oh, hardcore. Yeah, car- People don't realize how gigantic Earth Crisis is, was, outside of just the realm of this area. They were, again, a major player in that game that represented Syracuse all over the country. Just just incredible. And that that, that, uh, band's like Shelter from Chicago, whose drummer was from Syracuse, Eric, uh, at the time. They were, as they called them at the time, the the Hare Krishna Beatles of hardcore. But these are bands that could draw hundreds and hundreds of kids on a Sunday afternoon, all with X's written on the back of their hand, because uh, they were all in the scene, and uh, and it all had meaning to them. And it was just it was just an, inc- an incredible an incredible time period where where a lot of people don't realize that this was one of the places. The Lost Horizon was a key a key place to play if you were in the hardcore world. If you got on that show from somewhere in the country. You were you were in. So, you know, you're, you're talking six, six, seven bands every every time there was a hardcore matinee. It was just incredible. I know. I see. And then, and and the thing was is like when Brand New Sin started touring, and we we're going around the country and running in different clubs or meeting different bands or meeting bands that have been around for a number of years. And the conversation always led to like, "Where are you guys from?" Or like from upstate New York. They're like, "Well, where?" Remember, like from Syracuse. And they're like, "Holy shit, the fucking Lost Horizon." And we're like, yeah. Right. And then the second thing out of their mouth was, is that fucking pole still in the middle of the stage? Ah, <laughs> uh, the pole. Because, uh, I mean, people that are older now don't realize at one point there used to be a pole dead center in the middle of that stage, like where the singer would stand, <laughs> you know? Absolutely, dude. Absolutely. In contracts. For those of you out there in legal land, yes. In the contract, when you played the Lost Horizon in a giant, you know, in your, your touring band, your, your national release band, in the contract was that there was an obstacle, a pole <laughs> in the dead center lip of the edge of the stage. And it became very humorous as people dealt with it in their own different ways, Joe. But it was in there, and whoever represented you, if you were showed up in, to play, it had been signed off on. It had been initialed on the side. Joe knows what I'm talking about yeah. here, folks that are listening. A rider is the addendum, the additions to just, oh, here's how much I'm getting paid. Here's when you're playing. Everybody knows that stuff. But, you know, maybe the band needs a few things, and then maybe the venue has a few things you need to know, and someone's going to sign off, and that was one of them. And a lot of the performers who may have not have liked it, but someone in their crew or they got creative. Quiet Riot came in. Kevin Dubrow had a virtual heart attack at, at, the, at the sound check, and their whole theme was stripes, black yeah. and white. So the pole was black, and the crew took white duct tape and made a whole stripey pole out of it to match his mic stand, <laughs> and he got through it. Uh, who, who do you think, had the, most fun? Who do you think had the most fun with the pole? 
D. Schneider had a very good time with the poll from Twisted <laughs> Sister. Uh, he said a, 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 a few key foul words. We think we counted 94 times that night. Uh, and they ha- they carried with them pink spray paint all the time because they had barbed wire that went in front of their gear that they painted pink. And so the crew for the night painted the pole pink. <laughs> and B. Schneider had a field day with it. He had a good time with it. He didn't like that it was there. Um, John Waite, when he comes in with bad English, English. Uh, the, the you know members of you know Journey, didn't, didn't, uh, didn't, and, you, you uh, told me the story. He where... has a complete meltdown during. They the almost kicked him out of the band that night, right? Yes, you are correct, my friend. Neil Sean, <laughs> he tells Neil Sean he doesn't want to do the show, uh, and Neil Sean looks right at him while I'm standing right there and says, "If you walk out that back door." I'll make one phone call and you'll be gone. And he went right back into the song they were rehearsing at the sound check. <laughs> and Wait didn't go out the door. He didn't go back on the stage either, uh, but he kept his job. Uh, later on, he apologized and gave us a bottle of wine because he felt like he was maybe being a little too, uh, a little too rock starish at the sound check. But the show went great. The place was packed to the walls and he had a really good time. But I'll tell you, at the sound check, he was ready to walk out the door because he was not about to perform with a piece of metal in front of him. But he got around it. Yeah, because I remember, I think, I saw, I saw a typo negative there a number of years later in the mid-90s. And yep. they had played there prior, and Peter told me personally, he's like, man, I remember that club. And he goes, and unless that pole was gone, I would never go back to that club. I fucking hated it, you know? So they played there a few times. They were another another Halloween feature. A lot of great Halloween shows. Guns N' Roses, Typo Negative, Sonic Youth on Halloween oh, one year. Yeah. Just incredible. Just incredible. It's, it's stuff. so hard because when people younger kids are, you know, I mean, they look at the Lost End and they kind of know there's a history. And somebody's like, "Well, who's played there?" I go, "Actually, it's probably easier to make a list of who didn't play there." You know. <laughs> Let's let's talk about the time frame and then let's make a list of the people that probably didn't play there, but everybody else, you know, you know, did whether they're on their way up or they're on the top or they're on their way out, <laughs> you know, like they are on, we're on the downside of it, you know. Yeah, yeah, and there's a few key bands we will throw it out there just so people can know that did not play there. They're often rumored to have played there. Nirvana did not play there. Metallica right. did not play there, but Slayer did play there. Anthrax did play there. Uh, you know, the Dead Kennedys did play there. Black Flag played there. Bon Jovi played there twice. And then came there and partied on his birthday during the Slippery When Wet when tour. They play, when they played the war, was it the War Memorial when they played and they brought Skid Row over? They played the Carrier Dome. Oh, the Carrier Dome. And they're like, yeah, we want to go hang out the Lost. I got yeah, pictures of that uh, one. Stacy had pictures of that night too. I I, I have pictures as well. My Greg Italiano and myself with uh, Pico Torres, uh, the drummer from Bon Jovi, yeah. John Bon Jovi, his three weeks away to be wife, still his girlfriend, still his wife to this day, but uh, she was there that night. Uh, Rachel uh, Rachel Bolin and Snake Sabo from uh, Skid Row. Uh, at that point. Uh, the, the Jovies have their own plane and are flying from after each gig to the next city to, to, to already be there. They play Rhode Island, uh, Providence Civic Center, on uh, I think on John's birthday itself. Get on a plane, land here, and Bon Jovi says, Hey, let's go to that place we played in Syracuse. And the tour manager rents a van, and over they drive and show up at the end of the gig. 
One of the only times I ever saw Greg Italiano do this, but we locked the doors. Once the customers were out, we kept the bands that played that night, our house crew and those guys, and partied till the wee-wee hours. Everything was free. Tico Torres, the drummer from Jovi, takes over the DJ booth we still had at the time. And uh, it's one of the one of the most fun fun party after hours times we ever had there. And I'll tell you this to this day, John Bon Jovi, hell of a guy, super professional, and just a really cool dude all the way around. Is this, we met him twice when son? they were pretty much no one, and then we met him when they again hung out with them when they were megastars. He was the same guy. I think his son is going to Syracuse now. Indeed, he is. So I'm wondering if John will end up coming back up and being like, "Hey, is that club still there?" You know, like, and yes, it is, my friend. It, it could happen. It could oh happen. God, I mean, I've I've had plenty of shows there. Like once I started going to shows there, it was like it's a blur of uh, how many different shows. The most memorable show that I had outside of me being actually on that stage was the Marilyn Manson show, which is an infamous, infamous Very show. Infamous. It Very is, infamous. So I, I mean, had, I had I had left there just about three weeks. I had stopped working there, but that show is a big part uh, uh, still of me. As the phone rang in my house all day long, with trying to help people that were working the show solve problems for the very, very, very particular Mr. Marilyn Manson, who later in the show, because of things he was not happy with, once again on the contract rider, yeah. has the entire talks the entire crowd into tearing out the ceiling tiles in the entire Lost Horizon, which they do under Manson's guide. Later on, his tour manager has to hand Mr. Greg Italiano $1,500 off of their guarantee before they're allowed to leave to pay to replace the ceiling. <laughs> yeah, but didn't his tour manager also tell Greg, like, here, make sure everybody keeps talking about this, you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. And 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 because I remember, I can't remember who opened that show. Usually, I remember who the openers were, and I don't remember who the hell was on that bill. I just remember that it was only a few songs in, and I just felt like, dude, this is going to go badly. And my girlfriend and I kind of scooted out the side door, and that was it. And it was shortly after that, everything kind of was going, and then everything. As we we're leaving, you can see people just kind of running out of the place. So yeah, it was it was a, it was a nutty night. It was, and I mean, there's just so many of them, and I mean, it, at some point, and I've always said this, and at one point I was like, man, I would love a book to be either written about the place, or, you know, somebody who has got some loot to do a documentary. I know that there was a kid up at SU a few years ago, kind of did like a mini movie, right? You were involved Two in that. Two young girls uh, did a really, really great, you can look it up online. Yeah, I'm going to put the, the I'm gonna put the link in the description of this for everyone to check out. Oh, that's great. It's, it's very, very well done. Uh, Carol uh, Thorpe O'Leary, who's a, a, a player in a, a lot of, of uh, music events in the Blues Festival, it's her daughter and her daughter's friend doing it as a, I believe, a senior project. And they did a great little job. You 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 see uh, Chuck Teo in there, and Dave Dave Rezik, myself, and uh, and some other uh, key people. And uh, it's it's small, but it's it's very powerful. And yeah. uh, and we it, it uh, they did a great job with it. And uh, as you say, it would be incredible for somebody to do a longer version of that. And I have, I myself have thought about <laughs> hey a book called Lost Horizons, yeah, and with all the little stories and there's, maybe there's some just interviews. So many. With I mean, it could go on and on. You could. We, I mean. Think of all the local bands and myself. There's so many of us. The content wouldn't be a problem. It's just a matter of someone having 
to wrangle it all together. You know, oh, and that's you. the job I wouldn't want. It's like there's so much you don't want to overwhelm it. You know, but at the same time, yeah. you'd want to get the you know the just the deep history of that club. And I don't think people nowadays that run by it, like my gym is right down the street on Hudson where uh, Liquor Square used to be. Right. And there's a lot of times we run out of that gym and we run up that hill to Lemoyne and I run by that club and I tell everybody, I'm like, I don't think you realize, you run by this place and I don't think you realize what's happened at this place. You know? Oh, no. You know? And, no. and a few of the people that were there, they're like, yeah, I saw so-and-so there. I saw so-and-so. There's a few people that get it. But I don't, yeah. I'm like, man, you, I don't, if those walls could talk. And, and we're not even, we're talking about not just, we're talking about the Lost Horizon from, you know, but there was a history before that. There was, it was called the Yellow Balloon. It was called right. Wanda's. Wanda's. And, yeah. and then before yeah. that, before Prohibition, it was a bar going back to when there was an Erie Canal out the front, you know, so yeah. you're talking over a hundred years of history of all kinds of different, I mean, if those walls could talk, it'd yeah. be a lot more than just the concerts that happen there as well. Yeah. So it, it, it's even a crazy and it's, it's, it's exacting and specific location in that the stage area is added on when it's Wanda's is a much is a smaller uh, building and they add the back end on where the stage is. And technically the bar of the lost horizon sits in the city of Syracuse and the stage is in the town of DeWitt. I knew there was a, so, uh, there was a line. I didn't realize the line was yeah, that way. <laughs> it is. And the rules for the bar were governed by the city of Syracuse and not by the town of DeWitt, which was always uh, uh, something the town of DeWitt was never very happy about it. Neither was Lemoyne College, where many a student made it down the hill to the scary, evil, lost horizon that they were not too happy about being that close to their little, their little uh, Jesuit college. But uh, but but there it was. It, it's funny, you know. You're, you're talking about the history of the corner. I think about crazy things like uh, you're talking about driving by. Think about having to go down to the to the Western Ranch, which isn't there anymore. We used to have like a, a cool neon with a with a, a, a lasso on it right down the street. We used to keep bands there. I had to go pick Dickie Betts from the Allman Brothers up there once. I dropped the Goo Goo Dolls off at the gym down the street from there when they were still little goo goo dolls and uh just just incredible incredible stuff unbelievable of people that uh, that played in that room uh, is just mind bending all right one last question i mean i talked about your favorite story but what was the you know can you pick like one performance you're like that was the most badass performance i've ever fucking seen at the lost horizon i don't know about one but I, maybe a couple give me a couple seeing guar Live the first time yes. when they still had a school bus. Christ, we have no need for your crippled Christ, and we never lack for your advice. We don't have to hide a genocide. The fear is more when they know that we don't lie. It's got me on hatred this time. You love death, you're calling a crime. I choose the dagger. They had a used school bus that had all the people, all the Guar slaves and Guar in it, and loading them in and, and bringing in alien babies and 
and you know the meat grinder and the robots that were uh, very <laughs> incredible. Uh, and we had them many times. They were such great guys. The R.I.P. Uh, Dave Brock, Dave Brock he's a, yeah. a odorous youngest, great guy. Wound up being in a TV show that a friend of mine was on later on uh, called Holliston. Just a cool guy. And uh, another same similar time period, uh, we did several shows with Fishbone there. And unbelievable shows, untouchable shows, and another another great great band uh, uh, that I will say one of my favorites is we, that we did several times again. Bands we got to kind of watch grow up: uh, Jason and the Scorchers, yeah. and their lead guitar player Warner Hodges. Become Love such good band. friends. With, came back here and re, and produced uh, a, a, a rock and bones band I was in with my friend Penny. Your friend Penny, yeah. and uh, and stayed here with us. But uh, we met, we met those guys when they just had an indie record on, out and uh, and 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 they just came in the door and like went, what is this? And those are all those bands: Guar, Fishbone, Jason Scorchers, all had their own little pocket of a genre that they kind of represented. Yeah. And we felt like so good about like going. Oh, even, man, even a band like this- the Beat Farmers too. Oh, incredible, incredible beat farmer. Yeah. I got to play with the beat farmers. Great, man. Uh, 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 you know, Dick, Dick Montana. Again, another guy not no longer with us. Just incredible drummer, performer, singer. Beat farmers. Just, just another cool band. Another in the giant legacy of cool bands that came through Syracuse. Yeah. Well, at the Scott, I appreciate it. I'm going to have to have you back on. We're going to talk some more stuff. If you want to find Scott anytime, there's two different ways that I can always say to find you. You can find Scott up at the Dinosaur Barbecue. You've been up there working the dino for how many? 20 plus? 22 years. 22 years now. That's when I met you. It was right around that time. Uh, you, so you can go up there and you'll find Scott sitting in the back, man. You're more than approachable, more than willing to talk about these stories. And then the hey, other thing is uh, you have a great little project called Mr. Monkey. We do. We do. Yeah. Come, come, see us, uh, come see us at the Dinosaur Barbecue Friday, March 20th. It's go. my birthday party, and it's going to be a good time. That is his, man. Scott, thank you so much for being on. I'll see you soon, and I'll have you back on very soon as well. So, You bet. Thank you, Jess, Joe. Thank, thank you, you, K-Rod. Thanks, buddy. My album pick of the week. It's a band we just talked about. I mentioned it. It's probably my first show at the Lost Horizon was seeing a band called Fugazi. Hardcore band from the D.C. area. One of the one and only true D.Y.I. bands out there um, in their album, 13 Songs. This is a legendary album. Check it out. Fugazi's 13 Songs. Yeah! 